Hi everyone, my name is Kathy English. I'm the chair of the board of the Canadian Journalism Foundation. It's my pleasure to welcome you to today's JTalks Live webcast, The New Wave, the last of a two-part series on important new startups. You can view the first event, Ecosystem Builders, on the CJF YouTube page. Thank you for joining us for these important conversations exploring pressing issues in journalism. We are so grateful for the generosity of our exclusive JTalk series sponsor, TD Bank Group, for making these conversations possible. Thank you also to our in-kind supporters, CPAC and Cision. If you'd like to support the work of the CJF, you can donate now or at any time on the CJF website. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about some upcoming events we have. On September 28th, World News Day celebrates journalism that makes a difference. Visit worldnewsday.org for details on how your newsroom can participate and how you can encourage public participation. On October 4th, join us at the Toronto Reference Library for Hockey Blight in Canada, an inside look at scandals in our national sport presented by the top reporters who broke these stories. On October 20th, we are delighted and honoured to have Lisa Laflamme join us for an evening event at Kerner Hall. Stay tuned. For ticket information and related details, you can visit our CJF website. Some housekeeping. Today's program is 60 minutes long. You can submit questions for our speakers anytime via the tab on your screen. If you'd like to tweet about today's conversation, and we hope you will, our hashtag is JTalksLive. And now onto our program. New startups have become a recent bright spot in a media industry struggling to survive in the digital era and, and particularly the post-pandemic environment. The group we welcome today are brave leaders of a new wave of outlets, filling coverage gaps, and importantly, connecting with new audiences. Thank you to all of you. Joining us from the peak, co-founder <clears throat> and CEO, Brett Chang. From The Resolve, founder and publisher, Matthew Demira. From Indigi News, business auntie and contributing storyteller, Eden Fine Day. From The Green Line, founder and CEO, Anita Lee. They are in conversation with Linda Solomon Wood, CEO and Editor-in-Chief of Canada's National Observer. It is an honour to have all of you with us today, and I thank you. Linda, over to you. Kathy, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction and CJF for all you do for journalists across Canada. And Brett, Matthew, Eden, and Anita, it's great to be with you today. I want to jump right in with a question that we batted around when we were on our call together um, last week. And my question is about funding. Um, I want to ask all of you, how did you get your initial funding? And how did that catapult you to where you are now? And I'll, I'd like to start with uh, Eden. Thanks, Linda. Um, so Indigenous started with um, funding from the LJI, actually, the Local Journalism Initiative, in partnership with APTN. So it was like, it was a concept before it was an outlet, I guess most people could say that about their outlets. But um, 
it, it that that's how the funding started. And then since then, we've had to branch out, obviously, uh, to other funding streams, including reader revenue. Um, and while it was wonderful that we were able to get started with the LJI funding, um, we started off with five reporters. And then they ended up after, I think, the first year, they cut three of those positions. <laughs> and because it was LJI, they didn't tell us why. So then suddenly we had to drop down to two LJI reporters in our second year. So, you know, there's just going to be problems. Yeah. yeah. And um, I'm going to ask a follow for each of you about this. Um, and so, Eden, I'll start with you too. On this is like, um, when you speak to your audience, how do you speak to them about the value of what you're doing and why they should support you? Did you want me to answer that yeah, again? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Just how, do you, how do I speak to the value of what? When you speak to your audience about your value, which mm. I know, you know, we're doing as publishers and business people all the time in journalism, how would you like in a sentence capsulize what that value is for readers? Um, are you speaking like, how does one sell oneself in general? Or like, <laughs> yeah. how did it, yeah, kind <laughs> how of, did yeah, actually, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no, how like, does Indigenous, how does Indigenous, how do yeah. you do it? How do you do it? Well, I just, I feel like a little bit lucky in that sense, uh, um, in that we're such a niche uh, outlet. We've got a niche audience. It's all, all of our subject matter is niche, right? Like we write about and for and from indigenous communities. So it's so unique that I feel like for me, it's made fundraising pretty easy because I know exactly who our audience is. I know exactly who I am. And there's a cultural link between who I am and who we are at Indigenous and what we're trying to uh, bring to the world. So I feel kind of lucky in that sense that I have something so solid to rely on, which is actually just like literally in my culture. Uh, and that's what I propose to funders and to audience, uh, to readers um, that we're offering them. And that's what we're asking support for. And so it feels, it feels so worthy for me. Like I, for me, I value it so highly that it's, it's actually pretty easy for me to try to sell that. Yes. Thank you so much, Eden. And Matthew, how would you uh, answer that question? You know, tell us a little bit about how you got off the ground and your initial funding and, um, how you sell yourself to your subscribers and audience and sure um i mean i think we're still we're still getting off the ground uh so it's, it's an ongoing question uh in terms of funding uh and it's a it's an equation that we're still really trying to figure out i think because um there are some really successful independent media outlets who've made really clear paths um but in our case for the resolve uh we're focused um, on Black, Indigenous, and racialized communities. And so like a really big push I've seen has been reader-supported, community-supported uh, funded models. Um, and while we're really interested in that model, a lot of the communities we're supporting um, may not have the same level of disposable income to support uh, journalism. And in many cases, often there, is, uh, there isn't the same sort of level of trust with media. So I think in terms of getting people to understand the value of journalism and to trust it, I think is sometimes a longer path than perhaps a traditional business model would uh, suggest. So we are really interested in um, 
in building that support from uh, reader funding. And we've, we started our first campaign in the spring and we had some really great results from that. Um, but I think it's gonna be a longer path for us. So we're still looking at other revenue sources that can help build us out until we get to that place where reader revenue can be a significant piece. So um, we've, we, you know, we looked at grants, we did uh, a lot of sort of individual call outs to people across the country. A lot of our initial uh, plan was um, reaching out to community leaders, community organizations, um, specifically from black, indigenous and racialized communities. And so as part of that reach out, we often did find people who were interested in supporting our initial vision. So we got a little bit of funding here and there, sort of a, a, a community effort in that sort of, you know, putting all of your resources together kind of way. Uh, and we're also interested in foundation funding. But again, um, my sort of uh, experience has been that uh, foundation funding takes time and it takes building relationships. And so if you're not already connected into those places, I think one thing that a lot of us startup funders have found is that uh, it's not as easy perhaps as some of the stories make about people who are like, well, we, we had a concept, we raised $400,000 in our first year and we, you know, we started from there. And, I, and I, I'm all success to, the, to those kind of models, but I think that's not the reality for people who aren't perhaps as connected or um, just don't have those pre-existing relationships. Uh, thank you so much, Matthew, for that. Um, so many interesting things you both said about that. And I just want to, you know, underscore, um, you know, these are both of your publications are remarkably wonderful new publications from, you know, communities that uh, may have felt unrepresented in the past. And even in the best of times, getting funding for a journalism enterprise is really hard. So kudos to both of you and Anita. I just wanted to hear your answer to that. Um, how did you? How have you gotten your initial funding? I know you're kind of right out of the gate right now. And um, what do you intend to do with that? And uh, how are you speaking to people, funders, audience, supporters? Yeah, so a lot of what Eden and Matthew said really resonated with me. I just want to start to say that I also served underserved audiences. So the Green Line is a hyper-local independent news outlet based in Toronto that's all about investigating the way we live to help young and other underserved Torontonians survive and thrive in a rapidly changing city. So the mandate is to serve underserved audiences. Um, I, like you mentioned, Linda, we launched in April, officially launched in April of 2022, though we did have a soft launch the previous October. Um, I, in terms of uh, my business model, uh, we try to diversify our revenue streams as much as possible. Um, I, similar to Eden and Matthew, my goal is to eventually become largely member funded because we do, the Greenline definitely has a mission focused orientation. Um, but initially the way I was able to get funding, it's, it's I think quite of an interesting story that I'd, I'd love to share. Um, I actually anticipated that I was going to launch the Green Line back in 2019 when I had left the discourse. Um, the discourse is a publication um, that Eden is connected to. Uh, that's all about filling gaps in underserved communities across the country. Um, and I left in 2019. And around that time, I launched my consultancy, The Other Wave. So I, I knew, given that I, similar to Matthew, I don't come from money. Um, I, I don't have intrinsic connections aside from the ones that I, I amassed through my hard work and through my, uh, just uh, throughout the course of my career, because I've been in the industry for a long time. Um, I knew that I had to bootstrap a portion of 
the initial kind of funding that I needed to get the publication off the ground to start actually producing the content to validate our value proposition uh, to validate uh, just just to start validating the model. So I through the consultancy, which became uh, quite successful, uh, relatively successful, quite uh, soon after I launched it. Uh, I was able to invest my, in about $20,000 initially into my own publication. Um, InSpirit Foundation generously also donated a portion of funding. So that's a foundation that I have an ongoing relationship with because I co-founded Canadian Journals of Color. And they were also generous uh, in that they also provided funding for us in that capacity as well. Um, and then now I'm pursuing uh, corporate funders as well as foundation funders to get that base that I need to build out the membership model. We also have already started generating membership revenue, which is very, I'm very optimistic about uh, the future of the Green Line and just how much traction and resonance and engagement we've had organically with our audience. Um, so in terms of how I speak to the audience, it's a very clear, we're clearly filling gaps in coverage. So Toronto has a lot of news donuts, which are not quite, if, for those of you who are familiar with news deserts, they're effectively places that are underserved by existing media, and I'm sure many of you know that especially local news outlets have shuttered their doors across the country in the last 10 years. So um, Scarborough, my hometown, which is a suburb of Toronto, is a news donut. There's tons of those across the city, even though Toronto is the most well-served and highly saturated media market. There's a lot of folks who are underserved. So that's my mandate. And also, uh, young folks uh, in this country are underserved. People think uh, young people get a lot of news coverage, but in fact, a lot of the news coverage, a lot of my friends consume actually American coverage. Uh, of issues. Uh, so I really wanted something that was really spoke to young and underserved Torontonians um, in a way that just felt authentic, that they knew that, you know, the folks who worked at our publication come from the same places that they do and understand their needs and know how to serve them through the journalism. Thank you, Anita. Uh, first, I just want to say, like, I guess with Toronto now closing down, what it, you, you really have a big opportunity, it seems. And second, I want to say again, like um, how impressed I am by all of you, Thank you, because you've launched right in to, you know, very difficult environment and with, you know, some really strong plans and, you know, good thinking. And it's just really so great to see and hear. So Brett, I've saved you for last because it seems that the peak is kind of a different model. Do you want to tell us about that and how you got your initial funding and, and how you sell yourself to your, your audience? Not sure, yourself, yeah. but the peak. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we started the peak about two years ago. And when we started it, we had the intention of being a for-profit corporation. And so that was kind of the, the start for us. And when we start businesses, you kind of lay out a bunch of different assumptions you make about whether this can be a viable business. Uh, and slowly but surely we went through those. So it was things like, can we write a product that people really like, that it's content that there's a need for in the market? Can we grow our audience sustainably and efficiently? And can we sell high value advertising units? Uh, we did that for a few months. We invested a couple grand of our savings. Um, and then we realized that we really had something here that could be a business. And for us, really, that getting to profitability as quickly as possible, we thought was key to creating an enduring media brand in this country, one that can stick around for a really long time, no matter what some foundation or what a you know, minister of culture thinks. And so we really thought that we had to, to build a business here. And once we felt confident in the product and the business, and we had validated those assumptions, we then went to market to raise 
Uh, we originally planned to raise 350,000. We ended up raising 400,000. Uh, that came in from a variety of investors. We, uh, the Logic and David Scott were huge early backers of us, uh, TechTO and a number of different business leaders in Canada who we approached with this idea of creating the report on business of the financial post for the next generation, they really bought into that and they saw the opportunity, not just in terms of the product and the growth of the product, but more importantly, a return for them. And that's really how we geared it. You know, I kind of, I come from a business background and that's how we positioned it from the start. We raised that money. We didn't actually need that money. We realized that we could get to profitability much quicker than we thought. And so we Wow. became profitable about six months in. Uh, and then from there, we just heavily invested into growth. And then I, I think we're likely going to do about seven figures of revenue this year. And, uh, you know, we really think that we've got uh, an interesting model here that will stick around for a long time and service as a, a unique audience. It's very different than what everyone else does here. But um, that's kind of been been our experience. And like I said, there's a bunch of different, my my background, my network, I agree with uh, everyone else on the call. I, we were just in a unique position where we were able to do that and, and do it fairly quickly. Congratulations on that. That's just, you know, a really exciting story. And, you know, we want to dig more into it uh, in the next half hour to all your stories, because they're all really, really interesting and exciting. And, you know, for me, I started National Observer in 2015. But before that, I had Vancouver Observer. That was 2009. And I launched in really as a journalist that wanted to have a platform for great journalism and no idea about a business model. And so I've kind of discovered it over many years along the way. And I'm, again, so impressed by all of you that have done your thinking up front, or even, you know, Matthew, you, you know, I get it that it's more of a puzzle to be solved. I feel like I can relate to that a lot. And I, and I do think that the, you know, funding really great journalism is a puzzle to be solved still. Um, but Brett, it looks like you're doing some great work having solved the puzzle. So um, I'd like to ask all of you to just tell us more about how you're building your audience and um, who you think your audience is and who you want your audience to be. So um, we'll go back around in a different way. Anita, we'll start with you. Absolutely. So the Greenlight has three main target audiences. The first are action-oriented young urbanites. So that's pretty self-explanatory. That's Gen Z's and millennials who are, who are looking for ways to make change in their city. And uh, I don't need to tell everyone here that in the last decade, there's been an explosion of social movements that have, whether it's Me Too, Marches, Climate, uh, Fridays for F uh, Future, um, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter, a lot of these social movements have been driven by young people. Um, so that's definitely an engaged and activated audience that, you know, amplifies things that they care about, um, including the new sources that they consume. The second underserved audience, uh, or serve, a second audience that we serve are underrepresented Torontonians. And those are people who live, work, and play in um, like highly populated areas of the city that are underserved by existing media. So again, news donuts. And then third are culture vultures. And this is our non-local audience, which is effectively folks, because Toronto has increased in soft power so much, there's a lot of people around the world who are just interested in some of the cultural news that we produce. And as somebody who's who was a news director in New York City, I saw kind of the rise of Toronto and people's consciousness around the world. So that's another audience. It's not just a localized audience. I definitely uh, have an eye towards a broader audience as well, but still focused on hyper-local news. Um, in terms of how we've been attracting audience, so far it's been organic promotions entirely, and we found quite a bit of success with that. Um, I put a huge premium on developing uh, 
positive relationships with grassroots organizations who are already in touch with the audience members that we're seeking to serve. So for example, things we're, we're partners with BCG East Scarborough, formerly known as Boys and Girls Club of East Scarborough. Um, they are very, uh, uh, they're a charity that is has long like a long-standing positive reputation in the community. People trust them. They're also well-funded and they're great collaborative partners. Um, and they're great partners on the business side included because we're able to, as a for-profit news outlet, I'm able to co-fly uh, for grants with them. But in addition to that, just purely from an audience reach standpoint, uh, they have a lot of channels, whether that's in person or through their newsletter or social media to be able to amplify <clears throat> their network to their audience, and that includes the Green Line. So we also have partnerships with Trustee Hub, for example, which is a network of many different uh, organizations that serve underserved communities. So that's one way we've been able to um, get organic traction with our audience. In addition to that, we've done promotions on you know Google search and also uh, social media as well, but that's pretty standard. Um, I do think the partnership approach is probably the strongest one because with the nature of the kind of audiences that I serve, uh, you, there's a degree of, and Matthew referred to this, there's a degree of a lack of trust with the establishment or existing media for good reason, because these are communities that largely have been, you know, uh, stereotyped or overlooked in some capacity. Um, and as a result, getting buy-in is the first uh, point of entry and the first kind of touch point with the audiences. And then you start to build those relationships over time. Thank you, Anita. And Eden, how about you? Tell us um, how you're building your audience. Um, it's interesting because we we actually just did a little audience survey um, and we found out that of our audience, at least of the survey respondents, 75% of them are non-Indigenous and 25% were Indigenous. And I think we all sort of took that as a blow. <laughs> I think I was like a little sad when I saw that. But then my team, because I'm always like, but we're writing for the people, the culture, right? But the fact is like... Um, there are people who are interested in our experiences who are not from our communities. And there are people who are interested in uh, our worldviews who are not from our communities. And actually that's a wonderful thing. I mean, and I mean, I mean, not to get super deep, uh, but like in, oh, the no, please do. Please do. <laughs> in the prophecy from my culture, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to share our, um, share our culture with, with uh, the new folks who came Um and so it actually kind of makes sense. But um, I love the term culture vulture, Anita, because I was thinking too, I was like, a lot of the stuff we share or we write about is not actually like news. <laughs> it's like, it might be new to you, but it's not like breaking anything. It's actually like traditional knowledge or like a profile of an elder who has like a worldview that you possibly never read before. And I was thinking I would love to market us to actually more of an international audience, like maybe even an American audience to invite them to sort of look in on, on what we have. Um, so yeah, I need to start a culture or vulture funding stream there, Anita. But um, yeah, now I lost sight of what the actual first question, what the question no, was. That, that's really great. You answered it really well. Thank you so okay. much. And uh, <laughs> Matthew, how about you? How um, are you building your audience? Yeah, um, I mean, before we started publishing anything, we did a lot of research um, and we did like traditional polls. We did a lot of uh, in-person interviews. It was in like the middle of the pandemic. So a lot of it happened virtually and which was not our first plan. Um, 
And originally we were sort of thinking we might be more geographically located somewhere in Toronto or in one of the, the cities that has the higher populations of um, BIPOC communities. Um, but what we immediately found was that there were all of these pockets of people across the country. So like, you know, black folks in the prairies or the Atlantic provinces, and, you know, they're in like places or small, maybe even small cities where there's maybe five of them. And so you're never going to be able to build a, pop, a, a black publication for five people in a small city. So we really try to look at how we could um, expand our model to be more inclusive so that we could in ways serve um, people across the country. And how we decided to do that was to give examples of how people are creating change within their communities. Um, mm -hmm. So being able to tell the stories of people in small towns or big towns and really allow that to be sort of a cross-cultural exchange. Um, and we write exclusively uh, to BIPOC communities. So it's a little complicated because there is no monolithic singular BIPOC community. There is not a singular black community for sure either. There are many communities within, um, but what we do differently, you know, in mainstream, I always found we were told to write to our sort of stereotypical reader. And that reader would be Mary, um, a housewife in Saskatchewan. Like that was sort of the typical reader you wrote to. Our writers, I tell them to write to their community and I tell them to define their community, however that is. So if they are a 24 year old uh, Somali uh, immigrant, then I tell them to write to that community in the language they would use, uh, in the tone they would use, using the style they would use. Um, and so there's a really sort of, uh, creates kind of, I think a very rich, broad uh, tapestry. Um, and so we don't really have a singular audience in terms of age or specific demographic beyond that um, black indigenous and racialized community. We also did the same kind of research I think that Eden did and also found that about 50% of our audience was white. Um, and that's, that's, that's a good thing. Uh, the difference is, is it's, we are not centering that audience. That's not the audience we are trying to grow. We know they're interested in what we're writing. And I think it's important for them to be interested in it. Um, but we are serving communities that are generally never put at the center of, uh, audience targeting. Um, so. That's so interesting, Matthew, like what you say about writing, telling your writers to write for the community. Um, because like you know, building audience, right, <clears throat> today is so much about getting people to share your articles, and what better way to get an article shared is if you're writing it for a, a tight community that's going to read that article and go, oh my god, I haven't read anything like that, let me send it to everybody I know. Is that what you're seeing? Yeah, for sure. I think it's, um, I think what I'm seeing is people are seeing the similarities. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, even if even it is using the same example, someone writing for a small community in um, in Alberta, uh, people in, in Atlantic provinces, they, they're going through different things, they're having different experiences, but there are shared commonalities in the in the experiences, and so that's really what we're hoping to see is sort of building those kind of bridges and that kind of mutual understanding of um, how we're the same, how we're different, and how we can support each other uh, and learn from each other. Thank you so much. And Brett, how about you? How are you, how you're building your audience? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And growth is at the center of everything that we do. Uh, we try to be as data driven as possible with it. The good thing is, is that we have two primary channels that we grow, which is our newsletter and our podcast. 
And with the newsletter, we have a ton of data about what the lifetime value of a subscriber is. And then we can work backwards from that to know how much we can afford to acquire that subscriber at. The audience that we're going after are modern Canadian business leaders. So the average age is about 28. They're fairly senior in their careers. They might work at a big bank or an accounting form, firm or a tech company. And that's the audience that we're going after. Now, the great thing about the newsletter is that we sign them up. We see when they sign up, we see how much they're opening. We see how they're engaging with the newsletter. Uh, with the podcast, it's similar, but more of a black box, which is we can just see growth in the audience size. And so, you know, for us, the, there's kind of two main channels for growth. One being uh, referrals uh, is our primary one. That's about 30% of our, our readers. Mm -hmm. And what we do is we give a dynamic link to every single one of our readers. And if they share it with their friends, they are then incentivized to because they get swag from us, essentially. And so if you refer five people, you get stickers. If you refer 10 people, you get a mug. If you refer 20 people, you get a tote bag. And we've given out you know, tens of thousands of dollars of merch now. Uh, but we've been able to grow our audience as a result of that. Uh, at the same time, how we extend beyond that, and by the way, those are our highest quality subscribers, how we extend beyond that is through paid media. And so we spend between ten dollars to $20,000 a month on Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, uh, all wow. kinds of social ads. And we run uh, just a ton of different creative on that. And so if you go to our Facebook ad library, where you can see the ads that we're running, we're just constantly experimenting with different things to try and figure out how we can get down that cost per acquisition to where it is for our target uh, based on, again, what we know the lifetime value of that subscriber is. Um, so Brett, that's that's incredible. That's amazing. And um, I'm wondering, just like how many people do you have? Like how where have you invested in terms of staff? Like who's running your ads? Who's writing the copy? Who that 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 all takes a lot of bandwidth. I know. Like so, tell tell me a little bit about that. We try to stay as lean as we can. And really the core for us is coming up with sustainable process where, you know, we can do something over and over again, consistently put out really high quality product that obviously starts with our editorial product. And so we've got our editor, Sarah Bartnika and our writer, Quinn Henderson, they do an incredible job on the newsletter every single day. And they've got just an awesome process on how to produce that and how to produce that really high quality product that our readers love on the growth side. Uh, that's uh, we have Kim on our growth team and she's focused exclusively on how do we create enough uh, content on the growth side that when, how do we invest in that and where do we invest in that and what channels and what are other brands doing? I think that's something that's really important, which is every single week, uh, Kim and our growth team, they go and they look at every single one of the American brands that we think are analogous to us. And they look at what are they running? What's working for them? And then we try to replicate mm -hmm. that in the Canadian context. Uh, mm -hmm. And then we've got our sales team, which is myself and Chris. And then we've got our account management team, which is Alex and Eileen. Well, well, I want to tell you guys that, and everybody listening, that as part of my research for this panel, I have been looking at all of these sites, Brett's site, Brett's newsletter, Matthew, Eden, and Anita's sites, and they're all fantastic. And you should go and you should subscribe and sign up for their newsletters. And um, I have another question now, which is before we get to audience questions, which are gonna come up pretty quickly. So um, I wanted to ask all of you, you know, this business is not for everybody. It, it takes a lot of um, passion and persistence and grit to succeed in this business. So I'm curious about what motivated each one of you to launch your own publications. So I would like to start with Matthew on that and um, we'll move from there. Uh, I mean, it, it was a long journey. 
Uh, I started off working in more mainstream newsrooms. I did main, I did uh, broadcast local television news for a while. Um, and then I decided that wasn't for me. Uh, and I moved into more uh, independent alternative media. Um, I worked at Rabble, I worked at Extra. Um, and, and what I really found there was something I loved, which was that community focused model. It was really specifically about the needs of a, of a political community or um, a gender identity community or sexuality community. And um, it really reminded me of the old days of that sort of newspaper beat, your local paper and um, all the good that I think journalism can do. And so that's, that's where I started from. I, I quickly realized though, that there were still, you know, some issues and things that needed to be addressed. Um, there's a lot of, there's still um, specifically around racial representation around serving, um, not just the people within your organization, but also the communities that are being served. Too much journalism is focused, unfortunately, as, by, as belts tighten, as people look to find ways to succeed, journalism is moving to focus on communities that have more money, more wealth that can support journalism. And so that leaves behind a lot of places. Um, and so for me, the need was really why I started. It was, I saw all of these places, all of these things that we haven't even started to address yet, but um, the need uh, from community. So it's, it's both the love of journalism and, and what I think journalism can do at its best uh, and seeing um, just the, the lack of that access for so many people. So that's why we started The Resolve. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a passion project. It does uh, cause me to pull my hair out some days, um, but it's, to me, it's something that I think really offers value to, to, to communities. And so, you know, I'm, we've started off very small and my hope though is to model things that, a, a different type of journalism, a better journalism, both like with the economic model, but also the way we do it. Um, because I, you know, I look at like the work that Eden's team does um, and I, I see the, the, a shift away from uh, focusing on clicks and how to get the most advertising possible. And it really is focused on um, the needs of the journalists and the needs of the people being interviewed. And it's really, it's people-centered. And I feel like that to me is, re is really core to what I hope to do and what I try to do is journalism that um, doesn't do harm. I think so often the journalism that people are doing is so caught up in um, that pursuit of a higher truth, which I think is really important, but it leaves behind um, bodies in some cases. It leaves behind trauma and harm. And so because we are specifically dealing with um, communities that are, have experienced large amounts of harm, we are extra careful about how we do that differently. Um, so our hope, again, the, going back to your original question, is really about modeling something better. And, you know, hopefully, my, my hope is that, you know, from, from the five of us, there will be dozens next year and dozens the next year. Like, I want to see more outlets, more people taking up this mantle and really addressing the needs of communities all over the country, because this is really great and really heartening, but there's, there's just so much more to do. Well, there's just so much in what you just said, Matthew. I, I think one of the things that really stood out to me was kind of the idea of how wonderful it is when you're able to find a way, you know, to have your job be, to carve out a job really where you wake up every morning and you're doing the thing that you're the most passionate about, even though it can be really hard. And uh, it sounds like, you know, you found the way to do that. And um, how about you, 
Uh, let's see, Anita, I haven't been to you on this question yet, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's a bit of a two-parter answer. I, I've only ever had one job. I'm 35 now. I actually started uh, as a professional journalist when I was 14 um, as a paid freelancer. So I've been in the Canadian ecosystem for a long time, saw it evolve, worked in the States as well, had a point of comparison um, for mo just business models as well as editorial models. And so an element of the reason why I wanted to launch my own publication was because I went through the legacy kind of pipeline. I worked at the Star, worked at the Globe, CBC, CTV. Um, in all manner of roles. I was a producer, on-air reporter, print reporter, you know, kind of anything you, you think of, you name it, I, I've been it. Um, and at some point I saw, I started identifying gaps in editorial coverage at some of the places I was working at and decided to go to the States to cover, I covered the 2016 uh, US presidential election um, and did a lot of justice focused stories. Um, and then subsequently came back home to work at the discourse. So it was kind of a long trajectory of, you know, being in the, the typical kind of um, pipeline for Canadian journalism because our ecosystem is so small historically. And then realizing that there are things that I wanted to improve while also valuing, of course, the foundation that I got and the training that I got at those publications. Um, so that's one element of it. The other element is that I am born and raised in a suburb of Toronto called Scarborough. There's about 700,000 people there, largely working class, largely full of uh, new immigrants and heavily racialized as well. Um, and when I was growing up, there were a lot of, there was a scant coverage. And if there was coverage about my community, it was very reductive or stereotypical in negative ways. And I knew there was so much more to the, my, the place I called home than what, was, what I was seeing in the news. So the green line is actually named after the Bloor line, which goes east to west in Toronto. It's uh, color is green. And I basically the green line was my ticket to feel like a Torontonian. I used to take the 129 bus from my parents' house to the rapid transit RT line for Torontonians. You guys know what I'm talking about. And then the RT to the, the green line. And it was my way to feel connected to the city when I didn't really feel that way. And it was made to kind of not feel that way through the media I consumed. Um, so it's kind of a two-parter. It's just a desire to kind of make positive change in my industry, but also um, just reflect news uh, to these underserved communities, like the ones that I grew up in, in a way that actually allows them to navigate their lives well, um, and for them to feel like they're the part of the fabric of Toronto society and Canadian society, because we're not doing our jobs as, a journal as journalists if we're not serving all facets of the public. Thank you, Anita. And um, Brett, we're going to skip over you on this question and go straight to audience questions because we are already running down on time. So I wanted to get to a couple of really great, there's so many great audience questions, um, but this one seems a good follow and I'll, I'll throw it right at you, Brett. Were you ever nervous to start building something new from scratch? What gave you the self-belief to go for it? Yeah, good question. I'm a serial entrepreneur. And so uh, I've done this many times now, and I failed mo all of them, except for this time. Uh, and so uh, it, the courage came from unemployment. Uh, I, I had to do something. And uh, it was the start of COVID. I was sitting there inside, locked up. I, it wasn't a great time to get a new job. Uh, and so uh, the fear, you know, all the kind of doubts that I had over, you know, what if this didn't work? I really didn't have a lot of options available to me. And so, you know, we kind of took this up and we thought, let's give it a go. We, we've tried many things before and I'm very fortunate that this worked, but uh, I, I was lucky in that this is not my, my first rodeo uh, on entrepreneurship and, uh, and the, it was right time, right place. And so I, we just kind of jumped in. Uh, but I, I 
when I first, you know, if we go back to my first on, like entrepreneurial endeavor, which was too long ago, maybe a decade ago, I, uh, you know, it was scary. I get it. Uh, it was terrifying. And really at the time, the only thing I could tell myself, I was just out of school is that, you know, worst case scenario, if I fail at this, I'll have a great story and that other people in business will respect the fact that I tried. And that has been true at every single point in my career, which is that every time I've tried to do something, by the way, like that was a, a legal bus service that I ran. Uh, but what happened is I got shut down and then I got my job at Uber because of that. Like that, you know, every single time I've tried something, it's gotten me to a better place than where I began. And so uh, I kind of apply that to, to everything that I do now, which is give it a go. And it's very likely that it'll, it'll end up, uh, you'll end up better than when you started. Um, okay. And um, I know this about you, Brett, but other people may not. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your job at Uber? And then I, if you could follow with, Tamid had also asked, what gave you the self-belief to go for it? Oh, I was just a lobbyist. Uh, yeah, I was a <laughs> lobbyist at Uber from 2015 to 2018. They, they, I was marketing first and they call it policy, but I was effectively a lobbyist. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was a great experience. You know, I got to be, I got to have a front seat at uh, a very disruptive event. Uh, and it was fascinating to see. And, and I got to play a role in it. And I got to see this company explode in front of me. And I, I was one of the first employees in the Toronto office. And so that was crazy. And but most importantly, and I think this is something that's underrated is I, I learned so much about how to run a business, how to create an operationally efficient organization, how to you know stay focused on what matters and to drive things to completion. And it was the best education I could have ever asked for. Uh, I'm really happy I didn't do what I thought I was going to do then, which is my MBA. Uh, and I did that instead. And I, I think that having exposure to other industries and seeing how they operate and how they function, you learn so much that you can apply to anything, including media. It, it's not, you know, business is not a silo. It's, you know, there's kind of various different ways to look at it. And so I was, I was, uh, I, yeah, it was a great experience for me. Um, and yeah, that was, uh, that was my Thank experience. Thank you. Thank you so much. And it sounds like it was incredible experience and training to do what you're doing now. And I want to turn to a question from Shauna, who asks, how do you combat the isolation that comes with being independent? And Matthew, I thought you could take that one. Sure. Um, uh, I mean, that, that, it's, a good, <laughs> it's a good question. It's a hard question. Um, I, especially during those first uh, the first two years of COVID, it was, you know, exclusively meeting with people all the time, but always remotely, uh, not really having that human connection. And so I think um, what I'm going to suggest just to anyone doing this is, is to build your networks and have, have people to relate to and connect with because um, building, building a new outlet, it's time consuming. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of time. Um, and it's not, uh, there aren't necessarily a lot of people doing it as well. So it's been really helpful for me to be working with other publishers who are doing similar things. Some of them are in Canada, some of them are in the US, to have them to um, use them for advice and to offer advice back to them uh, for that sort of mutual support, but also just for that social element sometimes, because, uh, uh, you know, you spend, a few, you might spend your evenings editing and then you're doing audience engagement, you're doing all sorts of things, especially when you're small and you're doing uh, wearing multiple hats. Um, and, and now that COVID's over, or I shouldn't say it's over, but now that COVID is into its new phase, uh, 
I'm, I'm really emphasizing in-person connections uh, as much as possible. Uh, and for us, that means doing more um, in-person audience engagement work. Hmm. Um, so it doesn't really address the business, being a business person and avoiding isolation. Um, but there are a lot of people out here doing this work. And so connect with them. Uh, and I know like from my, from my perspective, I'm always happy to offer advice um, and hear from people who are starting their own projects and um, uh, just want to have questions. And people have been so generous to me with their time. You know, I've spoken to probably every independent newspaper, media outlet uh, proprietor across the country at one point or another, just asking for, for their advice. Um, and it's been, it's been wonderful at that, in that respect, so. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I'd like to add to that <clears throat> something that I discovered along the way, which was um, forming an advisory board, mm. like a group of people who, for me, have just been there with me through this whole journey trajectory over like 10 years or more. Um, and who, you know, when things get rough, you know, they can encourage you. Anyway, that's that's a little piece of advice from my experience. And now we'll turn to a question from Leslie. What are your worries and hopes for the future of journalism? That is such a great question. And I'm going to pitch it at Eden. I feel like maybe I, I don't even know if I'm qualified to answer that question because I'm, I don't know if I'm even like. I really qualify as a journalist. <laughs> um, okay. Um, um, yeah, I kind of came in more in an operational role. Um, so yeah, not sure if maybe someone okay. else. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that um, honesty. And um, I guess Anita would be a really good person to speak to that. Yeah, I'm more than happy. I think about this all the time. <laughs> and yeah. like I've been the initial. Yeah, you do. So I it's constantly on my mind. Um, and I love, I'm like I'm a huge journalism nerd, if you guys can tell already <laughs> at this point. But um I I have a lot more hopes um for the future of news in this country um than I have like uh fears. Um and I I knew I had a feeling several years ago that there would be an explosion of independent, like an independent media ecosystem. Um, and that's really come to fruition. And I feel like even the fact, the mere fact that we're having this conversation is a testament to the fact that there's, a, there's going to be, there's a lot more attention focused on this emerging ecosystem. There's going to be a lot more investment into it. So that's always a net positive. Um, so yeah, I, I'm the most optimistic by the fact that there are a lot of really cool and innovative media outlets beyond the four of us here that are filling gaps in coverage across the country. And that's only positive for the industry and positive for our democracy ultimately, which is something uh, that's a huge concern to me, given the fact that we're seeing like failed democracies around the world everywhere. And Canada still remains one of the more stable countries in the world. So media plays a huge role in that. Um, around my fears and concerns, I think my biggest one, I wouldn't say fear, um, but like one thing that I think we would, we should be vigilant about is to ensure that we do invest in this emerging media ecosystem and continue to do so. Um, Canada doesn't really have a strong uh, foundation or investment ecosystem, especially compared to our neighbors south of the border. And so I think it's really incumbent on major institutions uh, like the government to be able to uh, just inject more funding for specifically for uh, the outlets uh, like ours here. Um, because there's going to be a lot more of them and we do need that initial kind of support uh, and you know everybody here has recognized how hard it is to really just get started uh, start a company but especially a media company right 
Um, so yeah, more support, more investment is needed. Thank you so much, Anita. Um, and we have a fantastic question from Jeff, who asks, who says, the peak is a different model than the other panelists' publications. I'm wondering if Brett has any learnings from the peak that he thinks could apply to nonprofit outlets or small outlets just starting out. Well, that's a Brett? good question, Jeff. Um, yeah, yeah, I'd say, you know, I, I it's a different model. Uh, I think that's the most important place to start, which is, you know, we go after a really high value audience and we try to create really high performing ad units for them. That's the business effectively. Um, the one thing I'd say, uh, and this is probably the only suggestion I would ever give uh, because I, I just don't know that business well enough, is that there is a ton of corporate money that's available if you create the products. And again, I don't think this is compatible with every single outlet. But there, you know, there is a ton of uh, ESG money in particular that I look at and I, I see being available to publishers who can tell their stories to these audiences that they want to get in front of. So, you know, if you want to go down that road, uh, which I, I fully content, I, I agree is not for everyone. If you want to go down that road, you can do what we're doing at a with a small audience, but a small niche targeted audience that aligns with their objectives. And you shouldn't immediately discount that. I think that that's a, a really big opportunity. There's millions and millions of dollars available there uh, for people who can create those products for those corporations. And I think that's a really neat way to monetize uh, your business and your audience in a way, by the way, that stays true to who you are. I, I don't think you know we have a, a strict firewall between our advertising team and our editorial team. I think that should be true for every outlet. But I do think that's a, a real opportunity and and you know one that that is uh, worth worth considering. Okay. Thank you so much, Brett. So I have one last question. And because of time, I'm going to ask you all to keep your comments short about it. Um, and I would like to hear from all of you about it. Um, do you have a secret weapon that you want to share with other journalists or a, a secret formula? What's the secret sauce? Um, you done? Yeah, I think... I mean, for us at Indigenous, I would really say it's like just like supporting each other and, and like loving each other. It's such a strange thing to say. Uh, here we are in like a business and we're trying to like do important things. But I think what we realized is like if we're not there for each other as a team then we can't succeed as an organization. And so for us, what we would call kinship protocols or what other people might call um, HR policy. Um, we are just incredibly generous with time off and with um, just fostering relationships within the team. Hmm. Beautiful. Anita? I'm glad I'm going after Ian. I love that answer so much. Um, totally, that so resonates with me. I would actually take that one step further for my superpower, which is. Um, it's been alluded that entrepreneurship can be a lonely road, which I completely agree with. So I would say, make sure that you have a really strong personal support network. Like my husband's my biggest supporter, fan champion. My friends are extremely supportive of what I do. I also have, I'm part of a local media, indie, indie media collective as well. That's been really supportive as, and we meet with each other um, on a monthly basis or try to. So just 
it can be like a tough journey and you might get naysayers. So I think, like you said, Linda, just having that kind of grit and resilience and belief in yourself and your mission um, really will take you across the finish line. And that really helps when you have like a bunch of people cheerleading you on. Thank you so much, Anita. And um, how about you, Matthew? Um, I think I think knowing who you are and, and, and what your values are really matters. You're gonna be asked to do different things. You're gonna be experimenting in different models and trying new things. And I think if you have that clear vision of what matters to you, what is important to you, what are those lines that you have no, we will never cross, um, that makes a lot of this other decision-making a lot easier because you already figured out the hard part. Um, and so I think for us, that's been, um, it's been incredibly useful in terms of deciding everything from our editorial mission to our business model and all those other pieces because um, uh, it, this is a complicated business and everyone is carving out their own path and doing their own version of things. And it's really important for me to be able to wake up and say, I'm doing what I want to do and I am staying true to who I am. Um, and so believe in, in whatever it is that you want to believe in and, and have that clear vision and that clear sense of who you are. Well said, Matthew. I, I think that's so true that, you know, we often just, you know, let ourselves get knocked off the path that we know we're supposed to be on and um, by what other people say or, you know, harsh feedback or, and I really encourage anybody going into this to do exactly what Matthew said. And that is really just believe in yourself, stay the course, persist. Brett, what is your superpower? Well, I don't think I have any superpowers. Uh, I think I'm just mediocre at everything. Uh, the one thing I, I would cite, there's a CEO named Frank Slootman. He runs this company called Snowflake, big company. And he says, uh, narrow the focus, increase the quality. And I think that has been really true for us. I think people overcomplicate these businesses, uh, media businesses in particular, and they try to do a million different things and it doesn't really tie together. Look, we do three things and we do th three things at a world-class level. We have a excellent growth team and mechanics around how do we grow our audience as quickly as possible. We produce really high quality editorial content that our readers love, that Canadians really do love and want to read on a daily basis. And that then allows us to create high performing ad units to a high value audience that we can sell and then reinvest back into growth. And we just do that over and over and over again. And by just narrowing that focus, I think that the whole quality of the business really does increase. Great, thank you so much. So um, in our last couple of minutes, I just wanted to ask, we've, we've talked about a range of topics today and you've all said so many interesting things, um, but do you have any afterthoughts that you quickly might want to share any just anything left unsaid today that's in as a second thought you might want to add right now i'll say something i think what everyone is doing on this call is incredible that there is a fundamental problem with our media that they have lost touch with younger audiences that's a huge issue and it's capping their growth and it's great to see that other outlets like the ones on this call are trying to meet that void where they're going after a younger, underserved audience and providing content that resonates with them. I think we need to see a lot more of that in this country. And I think the legacy outlet should take note, but if they're not gonna do it, I think it's great that everyone else is and that we're filling that void. Thanks, Brett. Um, I, I'd love to say something too, really quickly. Um, I would encourage folks, if this is, if, if you, I, I would encourage if you have an inkling towards entrepreneurship, 
just go for it. Um, there's a lot more tools out there where you can kind of set something up easily, say a newsletter on Substack and just start kind of producing content and monetizing uh, fairly quickly. Um, so that's one thing I'd like to say. The other thing is uh, don't discount, like uh, I, I keep emphasizing partnerships, but uh, one critical partnership that uh, the Greenline in, has recently embarked on is with City News Toronto and we have a community show with them. And that's been, they're very value aligned. Historically, they are completely aligned with uh, Greenline's values. Um, and it's just been a really good way to collaborate with a legacy outlet and, and teach each other and do some sort of knowledge exchange for the betterment of the entire ecosystem. So that's, that's what I'd like to say. Matthew? Got any final words for us? Just trying to think of something short and uh, easy, um, but... Uh... No, nothing's coming to mind, really. Um, I mean, I, I think, I think um, support journalism, I guess, is, is probably always a good point um, because uh, we, we all need your support, I, I think is probably a really key place here. Um, uh, you know, Anita was talking about how hopeful she is. I'm, I'm really hopeful. I'm also really fearful in some ways. Um, and, and it's because of the hope. It's not because there isn't enough hope. I'm, I'm, I'm fearful because I see all the growth and all the amazing stuff happening and I want it to continue and I want it to, to spread. And so that's where the, my fear comes from is, is how can we, how can we keep this going? Um, and yeah. so Matthew, you know, it's going to, it's not going to come from one place. Matthew, I'm really, really sorry to cut you off. No, no, go ahead. That's the last thing I want to do, right? When you're talking about like, my favorite topic. So that you guys, this has been an amazing hour. Thank you so much for all of you for being here. Brett, Matthew, Eden, and Anita. I've learned so much from your experiences and insights, and I'm sure other people on this call have too. Thanks to everyone for joining us. And to those of you who submitted questions, a special thank you. It's so great to see people engaging on these topics. A reminder that you can find videos and podcasts of past talks on the CJF site. And to stay up to date on CJF events, sign up for the newsletter or follow the Canadian Journalism Foundation on social media. And one more time, I will just say myself, thank you to the Canadian Journalism Foundation for all you do for journalism across Canada. It has meant so much to Canada's National Observer, and I'm sure I'm speaking for many news outlets by saying the work you do is, um, is just, you know, helps democracy stay strong. And thank you all of you for watching again. Have a great day.